Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. In this episode, Indonesia plans to move its capital city from Jakarta to a part of the forest-covered island of Borneo. Jakarta has been attacked from both sides, from the river and from the land. If it all looks like it's looking like on paper, there's this potential for this city to be this shiny example. We talked to three urban planning experts to find out why they're building a brand new capital city and the environmental impacts of this move. I'm Gemma Ware in London. And I'm Dan Marino in San Francisco. And you are listening to The Conversation Weekly, The World Explained by Experts. So Dan, I know you haven't seen this video yet, so I want you to watch it. Go on, I'm going to send you a link, so click on it. Okay, got the link, and it's open. Okay, let's press go. Whoa. Tell me what you see. There's like a giant glass castle structure thing with like a flag and some, a lot of pillars. Um, I mean, it's a spectacularly crazy futuristic thing. And then there's the Indonesian flag in the middle. So Dan, what we're watching here is one of these futuristic artistic impressions of a new presidential palace for Indonesia. It was designed by the Indonesian artist Nyoman Yowata. He won a competition for it. Uh, so tell us, what are you seeing? What does it look like? Um, it looks tall. It's very see-through. It's very flowy and natural looking. Um, there's palm trees. It kind of looks like a bird, maybe. You've got it. <laughs> okay. So I'm at this bit, I think we're both at it, where you can actually see the top of this bird structure yeah. and it looks like you're flying over the... That's when I realized it was a bird when we got the like back view. Yeah. So, Dan, it is a bird. It's actually an eagle. And in Indonesia, this eagle is known as a Garuda. Garuda is the national symbol. It's an emblem. Uh, like America is like an eagle, yeah? We call it as Garuda. Garuda is basically an eagle as well. This is Eka Pamanasari. She's Indonesian and she's an associate professor in urban design at Monash University, Australia. Eka's research looks at symbolism in Indonesian architecture and urban design. Now, this particular term, Garuda, is um, very important in Indonesian identity. It's a very sensitive image and it represents a bold and courageous figure that can bring uh, a certain kind of like a prosperity and nationalism to Indonesia. This eagle-shaped building is carrying a lot on its wings. But the most important thing about this palace, beyond its shape, is where it's going to be. Nusantara. Indonesia has picked a site for its new capital. It will move from Jakarta to Borneo Island. Indonesia's government plans to move the country's capital city from Jakarta, on the island of Java, to the forest-covered island of Borneo, specifically the East Kalimantan province. The dream is to build a new, high-tech, green, smart capital city of the future, so it seems. Indonesia's parliament has approved a bill to relocate the nation's capital. In January, the government announced the new capital's name, Nusantara, which loosely translates to archipelago in Sanskrit. Nusantara basically is not a new name. Before Indonesia exists, it was called as Nusantara. This is um, pre-colonial during the Majapahit Kingdom. The Majapahit Kingdom was a Hindu empire based on Java between the 13th and 16th centuries. The choice of Nusantara as the capital's new name has been controversial, though. 
Some critics say the name is too Java-centric, and others that it's confusing to use a word that can mean the whole Indonesian archipelago for the name of one city. But this isn't just a story about a controversial new smart city with a palace that looks like an eagle. It's a tale of two cities, of a new one planned to be built in the middle of a forest, and of an old one struggling to stay above rising waters, Jakarta. Okay, so we want to talk about your home city, Jakarta. Tell me about the situation in Jakarta. What's wrong with the city? (laughs) (laughs) What's wrong? Well, look, Jakarta is a post-colonial city. If you look at the northern part of Jakarta, what we call as long time ago, old town Batavia, yeah, that was actually the colonial part which were taken over by the post-colonial nation. The Dutch began to colonise Indonesia in the 16th century through the Dutch East India Company. They made Batavia their capital and turned it into a strategic base to conquer Java and the outer islands. As they did this, the Dutch made considerable changes to the layout of the city itself. If you look at the old Batavia, it was actually meant to be the little Amsterdam in the colony. But the problem with the old town Batavia, there are some canals and all that, And that was where the settlements of the colonials, yeah, they lived there, yeah, the Dutch. As they remodelled the town, the Dutch burnt down parts of Batavia and reshaped the water infrastructure of it entirely. They created and diverted canals and built residential quarters in rows alongside them. But it quickly became clear that Dutch town planning was not well suited to Indonesia's tropical climate. They'd failed to take into account the heavy rainfall. And as a result, the canals became blocked and began to overflow. But then we had problems with the uh, stagnant water. So malaria, mosquitoes, dengue and other diseases. So rather than being as an elite complex, the downtown Batavia was left out. A new town centre with more adequate infrastructure was set up further to the south. From the early 1800s, the Dutch colonial class began to resettle there, abandoning Batavia's dilapidated old town. Skip forward about 150 years and Indonesia won its independence in 1945. The country's first president, Sukarno, renamed Batavia to Jakarta, an old name for the city. Indonesians from across the country flocked to the capital. They settled in all parts of the city in the decades that followed, including in the old town, where the canal systems remained in place. The problem now with Jakarta after the colonialism, it became a, a melting pot, basically. People from all over the places, they came to work and to live in Jakarta. So Jakarta is becoming like a magnet. And all the economic activities, they are all centred in Jakarta. Today, Jakarta has a population of around 10 million people. But the greater Jakarta area is home to more than 30 million. For comparison, Tokyo has a population of 37 million. But water still remains a critical issue. To meet the demands of Jakartans, the city government, private companies and even individual households have extracted more and more water from aquifers underneath the city. And as the population has grown, the city's water problem has only become more acute. At the moment, uh, massive extraction of the uh, groundwater, like they're just drilling and getting the water out of the land. And this is a major problem for Jakarta. Water exists between sediment layers in the ground underneath the city. When this is removed in excessive, unregulated amounts, the sediment layers can collapse. Six decades of massive groundwater extraction later, and parts of Jakarta are sinking. The capital, Jakarta, is slowly sinking at a rate of 7 centimetres every year. 
By 2030, according to experts, half of the city will be below sea level. Describe it to me, though. If you if you walk around Jakarta, can you see evidence of this, you know, as you go around your daily life? Yes. If you go to the northern part of Jakarta, you may see the road may be higher than the houses next to it. So the land keeps sinking, and this is really frightening. And in fact, in some other areas, they are actually sinking more than 15 centimeters per year. And then, of course, Jakarta is becoming like a delta. If you look at uh, the northern part of Jakarta, 40% of the area is actually below the sea level. But Jakarta is also prone to earthquake, land subsidence, flooding from the sea and flooding from the southern cities. And don't forget that there are 13 rivers overflowing the city. These 13 natural rivers which cross Jakarta used to flow into marshland. These marshes acted as a sort of buffer zone to prevent flooding. But over the years, they've been filled in and paved over to make room for more and more urban development. Today, an estimated 97% of Jakarta's wetlands are covered by a concrete jungle. But that means there are no longer enough marshlands left to absorb the water overflowing from the city's rivers. The worst flooding in six years hit the greater Jakarta area earlier. Jakarta's this week. east, thousands of people were moved to safety as floodwaters reached up to 1.8 metres high. Inside. Global warming, bringing increasing amounts of rain and more extreme monsoon storms, is making the situation even worse. And so, when it when it rains, I guess it's a different story. The city becomes yep. what Swamp. unusable. Yeah. Or, yeah, true. So rain is a, a real threat. Yes, it's no longer five years term, it's now yearly. Basically in January, there will be a very, in the peak season of the rainy season and sometimes the flood it will reach even the roof. In late 2019, Indonesia's Meteorology, Climatology and Geophysics Agency measured 377 millimetres of rainfall in a single day in the east of Jakarta. Its data shows that extreme rain events like this have been occurring with rising intensity in the past 30 years and with a higher frequency in the past decade. So Jakarta has been attacked from both sides, from the river and from the land. It's a complex of so climate change, massive extraction of the groundwater, the sedimentation problems that happens. And are there also other infrastructure problems in the city too? Yeah, definitely. The traffic is the main problems, yeah? You can see that the city is really heavily relied on the car. The number of cars on the road are still really high that in order to reach one place from one spot, you may take at least one or two hours. And Jakarta is lack of a green space. Out of the 30% that is allocated, like that they plan to have it, they only reach, I think, around 10 or 11 percent. And this is what concerns the most. As if you look at the population and land coverage, from the 1970s, Jakarta was pretty much green. But within, say, 20 years, everything is being covered. And that's, that's the reality in Jakarta. Eka says the government is trying to improve the situation in the city. It's been rolling out a couple of new mass transit systems, including an underground railway, and expanding the existing rail network. Urban generation projects are also ongoing, including a plan to increase the amount of green space. But perhaps the most ambitious project so far is a plan to construct a series of giant seawalls at a cost of an estimated 40 billion US dollars. 
it was uh, a plan to create this giant sea wall on the northern part of Jakarta in order to prevent the sea level flood and also to catch the water from the land and then treat them as water supply. So if you look at Jakarta 2030 plan, there are three layers of a seawall. The first one is attached to the land. The second one is attached to the reclamation land, which was already being plotted. And then the third one is on the sea. That is what we call as the giant seawall. In 2019, parts of the seawall collapsed. Now the whole seawall project has been postponed indefinitely, bedeviled by high costs, problems with land reclamation and public criticism. The land keeps sinking and then the water keeps rising, so they always add um, the height. So tell us, what's the government trying to do next? First of all, there were a lot of attempts in order to keep Jakarta as the capital city. Of course, it's not easy because the city has already grown and it's very difficult to fix it. So the easy way was moving away. Jakarta really feels like they've got a lot on their plate in the coming years and some serious challenges from land subsidence to flooding and infrastructural challenges. I understand why they're trying to move the seat of government power to a completely new place. They need to get out. Yeah, you can't blame them for it. But, you know, this isn't the first time that Indonesia has toyed with the idea of moving its capital city away from Jakarta entirely. My name is Hendrikus Andisi Marmata. I'm the president of Indonesian Association of Urban and Regional Planners. I also teach at the University of Indonesia, majoring urban studies and also urban planning. And Andy has also offered his views as an external consultant to Indonesia's government during parts of the planning stages for Nusantara. I asked him when Indonesia first began discussing plans to build a new capital city. Even since Batavia, early in 19th century, the Dutch colony at that time has troubled in Batavia or Jakarta now with the heat temperatures and also flood and health issues, so then they are trying to move the capital 35-40 kilometers from to the south southern part of Jakarta, but it's not happened because of the uh, financial issue. And then President Sukarno has also suggested to move the capital to the central Kalimantan, yeah, to Palangkaraya. In 1957, President Sukarno christened Palankaraya as capital of the central Kalimantan province on the island of Borneo. His vision was that the city might one day become Indonesia's new capital. But again, it was not happened because Indonesia at the time faced a budget issue as well, struggling with the economic development. And again, after Sukarno, President Suharto also suggested to move the capital to the jungle, one area still in the south part of Jakarta, but not so far. And again, it is not happening because in 1998, we have a financial crisis. Yeah? So there was precedent when in 2017, the government of Indonesia's President Joko Widodo, known as Jokowi, began assessing potential sites for new capital cities. President Joko Widodo announced that Indonesia would be relocating its capital city from Jakarta to East Kalimantan. Then in August 2019, Jokowi announced the capital would move. And now we have the law 
of the moving capital and we will have a master plan under the presidential regulation. Perhaps it will come by this April. It's really not yet clear when construction of Nusantara will officially begin. In March, a former official of the Asian Development Bank called Bang Bang Susantono was appointed head of the National Capital Authority, an agency tasked with managing the construction and development of the new city. But a big question mark remains over who will pay for all of this. I saw estimates that it would cost $35 billion to move the capital. Who is going to fund that? Yeah, at the first test, of course, yeah, the government will take a role to make the land attractive to the private sectors, yeah. But I think at this moment, the commitment from the government budget is only maximum 20%, yeah. So that's why I think the head of the capital authority, Bambang, need to engage not only private sectors in Indonesia, but also the global company or the global investors. Andy says that getting the city's infrastructure right and in early will be key to attracting private investors. But it's not yet clear what role public-private partnerships will play in the development of the new city. And he thinks the capital authority should be open to lots of different ideas and different models. Even now, I think the head of authority tried to make a test of water. Yeah? He said that it is possible to have crowdfunding yeah? to, to finance the capital. And yeah, it gets uh, pro and contra uh, as usual yeah, in the public discourse. But I think that's his strategy to get more buying in yeah, from the people. Still, some analysts say the government could face an uphill battle in getting the finance together for Nusantara. In April, the Japanese finance group SoftBank pulled out of the project, citing concerns about return on investment. Now reports suggest the government is hoping to attract investment from the UAE and Saudi Arabia. As I was talking to Andy, it became clear that very few people will actually be moving to Nusantara anytime soon. The law for the new city sets the 17th of August 2024, Indonesia's Independence Day, as the deadline for inaugurating the new city. The plan is for a couple of government ministries to be ready by then. The rest of Nusantara's development will happen in phases, and the timeline is still vague. President Jokowi recently estimated that construction of the city would be completed in between 15 to 20 years. So if it costs all this money and might take years to ever come to fruition, why is Indonesia moving its capital city? We've already heard about the reasons to leave Jakarta. It's sinking. But Andy says the move is also part of a wider strategic plan for Indonesia. In 2014, when President Jokowi and Yusuf Kala as the vice president say that Indonesia should go for the global maritime access. The global maritime access sets out a long-term vision for Indonesia as a global political and economic player. So... Indonesia should take more benefits on the geopolitical and geostrategic of Indonesian location and more development policy on the port cities and also the trading activities so then we can use the international shipping road. Relocating the capital also promises to distribute economic development beyond the island of Java. President Jokowi believed that by moving capital outside of Java can take benefit because as we are very dependent to the Java economic, yeah, more than 50% of our economy located in Java. Of course, the economic scholar argue that it have very small possibility to 
balancing development by just moving the capital to the Kalimantan Island. We agree on that, but at least before that, we need to reorientate our mindset of development by having the capital move from Java to uh, outside of Java. There's politics at play here too. President Jokowi is approaching the end of his second five-year term in office. Elections are scheduled for February 2024, but under Indonesia's constitution, he can't stand again. With this in mind, Eka Pemanasari told me about the political significance of Jokowi's decision to move the capital away from Jakarta. If you look at the history of politics in Indonesia, Indonesia is always being dominated by the Javanese leaders, yeah? And everything is about Java. Population is concentrated in Java. All development, everything is all in Java. Now, moving away the capital from Java, the good thing is, it's a kind like removing this Javanese centrism. Is there a political uh, imperative from the president to, to make this move as well, to move away from Java? Well, each president, they would like to create the legacy. Jokowi has, from my analysis, has proven that everything should not be concentrated in Java. Way before the new capital, he built all this infrastructure in Papua, in Sumatra, in in Borneo, because what he thought was other islands should have the same treatment, not only in Java. This political dynamic was on display in March when Jokowi visited the site of Nusantara for a camping trip and public ceremony. He was joined in the forest by the governors of Indonesia's 34 provinces, each of whom had brought with them a bit of dirt and water from their province. The symbolism was rife. Jokowi poured all the muddy water out into a barrel, and the governors planted trees native to each of their provinces too. And what did Andy make of this ceremony? He was quite impressed by Jokowi's focus on the forest in, in the ceremony. He, he said that Jokowi did his bachelor's degree in forestry, uh, and he's obviously thinking about the way the city is going to coexist with the forest around it. Part of the selling point of New Santara is that it is being built as a green city, but at the same time, it's being built in a forest, and that means there's going to be some environmental impacts. Indonesia has some really densely populated islands and areas, and it has some very undeveloped or intact landscapes, and Borneo is one of them. This is Alex Lechner. He's an associate professor at Monash University, Indonesia, and is based in Jakarta. My area of expertise is landscape ecology, looking at socio-environmental systems, looking at urban design, looking at impacts on biodiversity from infrastructure development, such as roads, such as transport corridors, and of course, urbanization in general. Can you just describe the landscape um, where Nusantara is going to be and maybe put us on a map there? So Borneo is a really large island. It's about three times the size of the UK. It includes Indonesian parts of Borneo as well as Malaysian, Sarawak and Sabah and Brunei. And the area is beautiful. It's got lots of intact, highly biodiverse uh, rainforest, some of the best in the world, really, um, forests that rival the Amazon. Borneo, I think a lot of people's minds go to the orangutans, but certainly that's not the only kind of important species. So what are some kind of the cool species you might find on Borneo? Yeah, so um, there's lots of really uh, fantastic and important species on the island of uh, Borneo, including things like the Asian elephant, 
but also in general the area it's this evolutionary hotspot so what you're getting is not only these charismatic species like orangutan like elephants but you're you're just getting species that are not found anywhere else in the world and that's what makes it an exciting place and a concerning place if we think about you know building a new capital uh why is the government building the new capital there so the government did a search for locations uh for the new capital one of the um reasons for locating the capital in borneo is its central position within the chain of islands that uh is the indonesian nation and the second reason being the indonesian part of borneo is relatively underdeveloped so they're hoping to promote development in this uh location as well one thing i should make clear is that the actual footprint of the city is in a location that isn't like intact rainforest from what we have heard it's actually eucalypt plantation so non-indigenous forest Plantations like these are monocultures. Basically, think of them as a tree farm with just the same tree species planted over and over and over. The forests that are going to be cleared to build New Santara are industrial plantations of acacia and eucalyptus that are used to produce paper, timber, and generate energy from biomass. And these kinds of forests aren't as ecologically valuable as real virgin rainforests. The trees themselves are less biodiverse, and so are the ecosystems they support. Still, building a city in an area of Borneo that is relatively underdeveloped will have a massive environmental footprint. So far, researchers haven't been given access to the data they need to understand the broader environmental impacts. I think one of the things, especially for academics and NGOs and people looking at this from afar, is that th- there hasn't been much information. There was talk about wanting a forest city, you know, a bio city very early on at the beginning. But of course, there was nothing really there around quantitative statistics about what that means. But just quite recently, there's been a website created. and it's actually quite fantastic in terms of what's being aimed so there are eight principles um that they describe and these principles range from design based on natural conditions um to circular and resilient economies unity and diversity low carbon emissions and, and so on and so forth and so if it all looks like it's looking like on paper there's this potential for this city to be this shining example for southeast asia in terms of what green and sustainable development should should look like. And I guess one thing we we also got to think that you know this is what we have to do if we look at our global challenges around biodiversity mm-hmm. around climate change we have to build cities like this. You know in a way it's it looks like we're aiming for the stars but really this is what our future has to look like if we're going to address some of these global problems. So you know a forest city sounds like an interesting and certainly cool thing very green um what does that look like what are the environmental opportunities that might be at play um to d- design such a city yeah yeah so um i've spoken to the designer sibiran sofian and the design is really um very aspirational in what they're trying to achieve in terms of concrete uh, numbers they describe this aim to have 75% of the new capitals footprint area to be green areas so that's quite incredible it aims for carbon neutrality and this is a low 
medium income countries. They don't have the kind of funds that cities in high income countries in the US or Australia, for example, have. So sure, sure. And they're talking not only about the environmental aims, they're looking at the full suite of sustainability goals, looking at poverty, looking at diversity. If we're putting on kind of a realpolitik goggles on here and accepting what the reality is going to look like, what might the more real version of the capital look like mm. from a, your perspective? Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's a real challenge. And I can imagine when we go on the ground, we'll, we'll discover things aren't as good as uh, they would be on paper. But then I could, that's probably the same across the world, <laughs> you know. When I asked Alex what some of the criticisms were about moving the capital city, he immediately brought up Jakarta. So firstly, we have this issue where we're not dealing with the current environmental and social problems in Jakarta. And instead, it's like throwing a, we made a mistake, let's start again. In a way, that's part of our problem, you know, I think globally. But beyond that, he was also concerned about the impacts of moving millions of people to an area that is currently mostly forest. Jakarta, the city, if you look at the uh, metropolitan Jakarta, that's 30 million. So obviously they're not going to move 30 million, but definitely there's going to be a sizable footprint in terms of population. So it, it's expected by 2039, they're aiming for there to be 2 million people there. So that's a, a massive population growth in the, in the area that just doesn't have this kind of high-density populations. Alex says the plans are to make Nusantara a sustainable development using circular economy approaches involving waste capturing, recycling, and reuse. But he says it's what happens outside of the designated city area that's going to be really important. The key problem is, is we've got these eight principles for the city itself, but what happens to all the development which this city encourages outside of the city boundaries? Are they going to be all developed sustainably or are they just going to proceed, you know, in that normal trajectory, which is quite bad for the environment? They're connecting other cities in Borneo. These roads are likely to dissect Borneo itself. And what we know, as soon as we have formerly intact areas where accessibility has increased, we have all these massive spillover effects on biodiversity. Because if you remember, one of the fundamental reasons for the new capital is to promote development in this area. Even if the development of the region around New Santara is well managed, Alex is concerned about potential damage from informal and sometimes illegal development. What we get is this fishbone pattern of small, sometimes illegal, sometimes legal roads coming off these large roads. So we'll have roads coming in, people getting access to areas, they can convert natural areas to agriculture, they can develop areas, there'll be increasing accessibility for things like poaching. There's a whole raft of cascading spillover effects on the environment, and, and especially biodiversity. And this is, it's almost inevitable. That's the real concern that we may have these great paper-based policies around the capital, around indirect impacts, around some sort of strategic plan. But what happens in reality is the huge concern. And perhaps if I was environmentalist, the easiest thing would be not to build it in the first place. I am optimistic about what's going to happen within the footprint. There's some really fantastic designers. I think 
being environmental isn't so political in Indonesia like it is in many sort of Western democracies. So I can imagine a lot of people would be behind it. Of course, there'll be issues around implementation because there'll be builders, there'll be the actual uh, constructors and, and developers who will have to reach these principles. And of course, they may not hold the same perspective and, and often money wins out. Alex, and I think most of us, would love the idea of a green utopian city, but there's a big difference between a plan on paper and actually implementing a massive project like this. Yeah, and even if you can get all the infrastructure in place and, and build the thing, what's so crucial is finding the people to move there. So how do you go about doing that? It's also something that Eka Pamanasari is thinking about. These infrastructure projects, of course, they require a lot of money. And it's not only about building infrastructure, but also building the people. And that is something which I think the current government should work on. It's not only about creating this good policy and physical environment, but also the, the environment and the social condition of the people who are living there currently and who are going to live there. How would you make them work together and be part of the society? Mm. So how will people be persuaded to move there? Mm, that's the question. Um, because everything has been in Java. <laughs> this is also a new thing, you know. <laughs> not, if you read the news, uh, not many people wanted to go initially. <laughs> um, and I think this is a big leap for Indonesia. First of all, it's a change for us to change the perspective, like living outside of Java, uh, some kind like promising. But don't forget about the people who already live there, you know. What do they feel, you know? Um, because they should be part of this. It's their land too. So there should be a change of perspectives from the people who are in Java, but also people who are in Borneo. And we should work hand in hand towards this. So what you're saying is that it shouldn't just be people from Java and all the offices and the government buildings and the civil servants who move there. It needs to be Borneo as well. Yeah, I mean, like, they are there already, right? I mean, they may not be in this area, but they should be part of this, you know? They should celebrate this too. They are the one who should be prioritized, in fact. And then I guess the, the, the big question then is, what's going to happen to Jakarta mm. afterwards? Well, <laughs> Jakarta will be... Uh, the center of economy uh, because Borneo was aimed to be the center of government. Yeah, the, the persona Jakarta, or what we call as the e, the the image of Jakarta, or the charm of Jakarta, will not fade um, as an economic center because everything is there. You know, all the all the commercials and everything is there. Uh, if you look at the design, there are some commercial centers, but not as much as in Jakarta. But in Jakarta, uh, you know, all these commercial districts, Tamrin, Sudirman, and in fact, now towards the eastern part of Jakarta, everything is about offices and commercial business complex. So Jakarta will not uh, lose its charm. It's still becoming a, an economic center and it still play a, a major role in Indonesia. And I don't think uh, Jakarta will be left behind just like that. And the fact that it is the city with layers of symbolism from colonial till now, in the historical aspects, Jakarta will always be on the map. 
You can follow more developments about New Sontara and learn more about the environmental challenges facing Jakarta on theconversation.com. We'll put some links to that coverage in the show notes. That's it for this week. Thanks to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode. And thanks to The Conversation's Ike Krismantari and Stephen Kahn. And to Alice Mason for our social media promotion. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us, podcast at theconversation.com. Don't forget, sign up for our free newsletter. Just click the link in the show notes. And if you're enjoying The Conversation, please leave a rating or review wherever podcast apps allow you to do so. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Amanda Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sol. I'm Dan Marino. Thank you for listening.